<sighs> makeup. I think I've had enough. Uh, makeup. Thank you. Here we are, episode seven, series five. It's Whiskey Unscripted, and I have got in my company Mr. Gordon Dundas. How are you? Ah, hello, 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 hello. How are you, sir? Well, it's always, it's always, you never know how to start these things, Gordon. Oh, but, uh, yeah, we're at episode fifty-three or something now. So unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. And I think we've done some really. The last couple of episodes, I've really, really enjoyed. I love Becky last week and the last episode and. The, uh, the one before that, obviously, and and many others. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. But we've both been out and about and doing things as well. Yes, that's right. So it's one of these podcasts where it's it's not as regular or as weekly as some others because we we do work in the industry. We are out and about with the. Um, they are working. <laughs> we are out and about. Yes, we're pretending to work. Uh, Gordon. Um, can I ask, what are you drinking today? Let's well, get right into the podcast with some lovely liquids. i tell you what I've, I picked up today, because it links a little bit to what we're going to discuss a little bit later. Um, and I've got a Tamdu cigar malt, and I'm going oh. to drink that, because that was a fabulous release from Tamdu. Um, lots of first fill European oak and um, beautiful whiskey, 53.8%. Uh, Don't have to have a cigar. Uh, you know, beautiful on its own, but works really well with a cigar. And anybody who wants to know more about it, have a look at the video we did back in sort of September last year for the launch of the first cigar malt. But the reason I'm drinking this is in line with what we're going to talk about later and summer whiskies, because this may be perceived as not a summer whiskey. Um, yes. But for me, whiskies anytime. And we'll talk about that later on. So first fill European oak, beautifully rich and those thick, rich, dark fruits that you would expect. Fabulous. Fabulous. It really was, and a great video you filmed up there in Tamdu, which is a wonderful place, that mm. area, to spend summer. Um, and that was one of the quickest selling whiskies of all time, that Tamdu. Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. Now you see it, you don't. Yeah, it was unbelievable. So that that was wonderful. Um, Gordon, what I'm are you drinking, drinking? Well, we've got our friends from the whiskey shop in London. Um, we used to work for the whiskey exchange, Vinny, a mutual friend of ours. Mm. And Vinny was passing through the distillery and, you know, when exchanged whiskies in the past, and they brought yep. uh, a couple up for a sample. And I said, that will be exactly what we'll do for Whiskey Unscripted, Vinny, and we might get you on the show at some point. So it's given me a lovely little Kalila 15. Kalila. Now, there is a beautiful whiskey. That is a lovely, lovely dram. Um, I have to say, I don't know which I prefer more, Lagavulin or Kaila. I mean, Lagavulin 16 is a legendary whiskey, but yeah. Kaila, beautiful stuff. Um, beautiful stuff. Most of it obviously produced to go into Johnny Walker. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is a major factor and part of Johnny Walker. And if you go to the Johnny Walker experience, you'll learn that. But uh, still a fabulous distillery uh, and produces small amounts, if we're honest, of very good single malt. So uh, lovely, lovely, it's lovely fruitiness is there, Gordon, with the, the trademark Isla Pete. Um, we'll, Absolutely. Uh, we'll maybe be speaking to somebody later on about that. So uh, news, we chat uh, in the whiskey. We're now talking what? This is late June 2022. Gordon, uh, always ask you anything caught your eye in the whiskey news where we're having a dram. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always something in the whiskey news. And I one of the things that caught my eye this week is, and a few people have said that, and I think it's something that you, we, we as industry people want to be aware of, but I don't know how much it affects our, is that 
affects our sort of thinking, but there seems to be a softening in the secondary market, apparently. So all those websites that sell whiskey, mm -hmm. I think prices seem to have come down a little bit, which is probably a little bit of an indication of what's going on uh, with everything at the, at the moment. But um, uh, it's just something, you know, that I know a lot of people, you know, sell bottles, buy bottles, whatever. Um, and it's just something to be aware of in terms of, you know, maybe it's just a little softer right there. But I mean, certainly from our perspective, in terms of selling whiskey, we are, we, we've, we're, we're selling lots of whiskey and yeah. we could do with selling a little, we could do with having a little bit more, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So this is the um, second market. So People say for, for a while it was almost more valuable than gold. If you got whiskey and you kept mm. it, you could sell it on. The, 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 mm. the, what you'd make from it, that couldn't sustain itself, and it doesn't sound like it maybe has. Is that right? Yeah, and no, I think I think it, it it's like everything. I think it's gold's maybe not the best, but if you know watches, you got to buy the right watch if you want to make. You got to buy the right car. You've got to, You're not going to make money on a Ford Fiesta. You yeah. might on a very old Ford Capri, if you know what I mean. Um, so it's whiskey's the same. And we know that brands like McAllen are, are completely and utterly in another stratosphere in terms of, you know, how, how, how they work in a secondary market. And, and, but um, I mean, even if you look at a brand like Glengoyne, Glengoyne does okay in the secondary market. But I think what is interesting with Glengoyne is a lot of people buy Glengoyne and they drink it. They're drinking it because it's fabulous quality whiskey. And I think that's a prime example of uh you know, if you buy a Glengoyne 25, it's about the best 25-year-old you can buy. I'm a little bit biased, of course, but yeah. it's fabulous. And people yeah, yeah. buy I, it and drink I, it. Two things about that one, Gordon. Um, I did uh, my storytelling tour at Glengoyne. Mm -hmm. Was that sold out there? It was a sellout tour. Thank you for mentioning that. But okay. there's a chap from Texas at the end. That's exactly what he was asking. Um, is there anything here I could buy to collect? You know, 25 yeah. or 30. What, what, tell me what, I'll buy two of them. Um, and it's very... But you're not going to make the key thing with Glengoyne is yes, probably in five to ten years you might make some money. You're not going to make immediate money immediately because we're not that. You know, we're a brand producing great whiskey. That's people right. drink it. We know that's the case. It's not um, a single cask. It's not maybe being produced no. for a, a certain event with a, something special on the label. No. Uh, but anyway, that, speaking of labels, uh, two oh. things. Oh, sorry, the second thing I came out of that as well, Gordon, mm -hmm. was. Um, I've forgotten. Let's move on. Um, okay, this is whiskey unscripted. <laughs> totally <laughs> and utterly unscripted. That's right. This is a Kalila 15, so that's all I'm... Um, we talked about this chap yesterday, last time on the show. One of my favourite authors and one of the most colourful characters in the world of Scotch whiskey. Uh, the only third-generation master blender has been given an OBE on ah. Tuesday, a Holyrood Palace, which is a wonderful recognition of not just him, but of the whiskey industry. That'd be Mr. Patterson. Richard Patterson. The nose. Yes. What a what a what a guy. What a what a absolutely fully deserved. The the amount that guy's done for this industry is is fabulous. And uh, I know he's pretty much semi-retired, I think. Um, but um, yeah, fully deserved. Yeah. And uh, if you've ever seen Richard do a whiskey tasting, you'll never forget it. <laughs> That's why, and also I was just about to jump in there about labels. You mentioned that earlier on, and mm -hmm. that's maybe what I was forgetting. But it's a small thing uh, in the news. It might have passed a few people by, but it's a massive thing for the industry, and I think it's worth seeing it. Mm -hmm. Is the Scottish whiskey um, authorities, it's SWE, secured the Scotch whiskey trademark in America, which means I would have thought there was one, but there's not. There'll now be a, this is a Scotch whiskey little logo 
on a bottle of wow. Scotch whiskey sold Brilliant. in America, which tells the Americans this is from Scotland. And it's just an, another layer of well, that's that's a good thing because there are still people out there who think you can get scotch from other countries. Yes. Because scotch is such a generic term, particularly in America. Give me a scotch and it covers everything from, you know, it, to, to most people, they know it's from Scotland, but to a lot of people, scotch means whiskey. Yes. And it doesn't mean a single malt. It doesn't mean a blend. It doesn't mean it's just scotch. And so that's great because it means it's coming from Scotland and it improves that sort of provenance and all the things that, that the Scotch whiskey industry relies upon. So I think that's a great idea. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that was very good. And the thing I did forget to mention, <laughs> it's one of these, just you mentioned about monitoring the secondary market. I just think for listeners, does the industry and people like yourself, do they monitor the secondary market in whiskies? Obviously, we're monitoring the first primary market, as us. Yeah. Do you keep an eye on what's happening? No. no. I mean, I think the only reason I have at the moment is I'm tasked with, um, we do look at it from a Rosebank perspective because uh, we're actually looking to source some Rosebanks on, on the secondary market. Um, uh, but also, you know, obviously we've got a, a highly prized and limited asset, and which we know would be very silly to say, people aren't collecting. We know people are collecting it. And so therefore it's nice to see how it is doing in the secondary market. And we're very happy how Rosebank is going at the moment. So of course we do. Of course, it's something that every person in the industry, you know, we all want people to drink whiskey and enjoy it, but we know that that isn't always the case. And we know that people are doing it to make money. I mean, you know, we look at Bomore and Isla, for example, the fish, we know that there's people flipping bottles immediately and it's a frustration, but it's a fact of life. And uh, certainly, um, you know, it's certainly something the industry yeah. is aware of and does look at. And I think anybody who says they don't would be probably not a little economical with the truth. Okay. That way. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll hopefully with the powers that uh, I have vested in my laptop, speak to Malcolm Rennie of Rosebank oh, shortly, very shortly. Fantastic. Um, we um we're just assembling a, a link from Rosebank as we speak, so we'll speak to him very shortly. But before we do, Gordon, another piece of news, and you said uh, that expression, fact of life. This is a fact of life in the whiskey world. The silent season is a problem. Ah, uh, yes. And I just wonder, you know, it's happening all over Scotland. Mm-hmm. What did Tam do? But maybe just gives a, a, a chat about how the silent season isn't so silent and what it is. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it basically it's your maintenance window generally twice a year. Um, and look, you've got to remember, most whiskey distilleries, despite the fact of raw material costs are very high, power costs are very high, uh, things that we're inflation, all the things that make production at the moment probably the most expensive it's ever been to make whiskey. Um, uh, these plants are working, most of them are working pretty much 24 hours, uh, you know, a day, mm-hmm. seven days a week at the moment. Most whiskey distilleries are producing as quick. And, and so you have, you don't have any time to do any maintenance. You only, so if something goes wrong, of course, you, you will have to do it. But to prevent that and make sure things run smoothly, a silent season of two, possibly even three weeks where you're not producing and it's been built into the schedule uh, is really important to do the, so you may need to change a condenser, you may need to look at pipework, you may need to do something to the roof. There's a whole range of things that you might need to do. 
And so to have a silent season is really, really important. Um, and obviously gives the production guys a bit of a break as well because they're working shift work. And, and so, you know, the industry, every distillery does it because you have to maintain these, these plants. You've got to maintain this yep. system so that it can continually produce that beautiful spirit. And historically, it was when the water was at a low level was one of the, the mm-hmm. you know, yeah. reasons I mean, we hear that it was done in the middle of summer and also um, between barley harvests. Mm-hmm. As well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's an obvious time where, for most distilleries, it it, it makes sense to do it tamdu, a little bit yes. different, yes, um, because of the way that tamdu is supplied by power, um, and uh, you know in the winter tamdu runs on uh, diesel, and in the summer it runs on gas. But that at the moment, because of the way things are with everything, is a little bit different. So tamdu silent seasons tend to be more April and October. Yeah, yes. Um, different. So slightly different. But it's a massively important part. I know what Glenn Goyne, because yep. I was up there yesterday, and we've talked about it already today, but just because I know it, it the wash still line arm is being removed. And I tell you what, that's not an easy job. No. It's done before a few years ago, and it was a pig to get back on again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's absolutely. the kind of thing that's getting done, as well as the yard getting dug up and the ponds getting drained. But these are the typical so- things that happen. And I think... If you're going to make for a distillery, if you've been to one, sometimes are quite similar, but during the silent season, you can really get in there and see the equipment open and speak to one or two of the people fixing it. And it oh, yeah. can be an interesting time. Even simple things like you can see inside the stills, which you don't ever get to see, and you can see how the, the heating pans work or the steam coils work and all that type of thing, which is um, really interesting. And, and you know, all, you know, sometimes you may get a washback replaced, those types of things. So any mash ton maintenance and all that all happens just to make sure it's going to run smoothly for the next six to nine months and we don't have any problems. And it's, a, it's, it's like everything. Maintain stuff and it should work a lot better and now, give you more efficiencies in a better spirit. Before we speak to Malcolm, you just came across another conversation I had with a member of the public last week was with all the production costs, will whiskey, whiskey start becoming more expensive along with everything else because of all the costs and the casks will be more expensive, no doubt, and the electricity more expensive. Will that add on to the price Look, of the bottle? Uh, put it this way, I don't think whiskey is going to come become less expensive over the next uh, yeah. year or so. I think that's only fair. Uh just being honest, I think your whiskies are, they'll still be good whiskies at good prices, but um, whiskey in generally, general, is going to become more expensive. I think that's only fair and uh, uh, in the context of what's running in the world. But uh, I just want to be straight. I don't see it. I don't see it staying in the same place and I don't see it going down. So right, therefore, okay. it's going to go up. So, oh. yes, I think that's probably a good a good uh, right. a good oh, well, prediction. We need cheering up then. We do, we do need cheering up. And I think this man was on the first episode of the Series 5, Malcolm yes. Rennie, our esteemed manager at Rosebank. And I know Absolutely. people want to know what's happening. Yes. Uh, Gordon, just set the scene about Rosebank. If you've not you know, joined us on Whiskey Unscripted before, yeah. a lowland giant is reawakening. It is. A lowland giant is reawakening. And it's really pretty much close to being awake. Uh, I think that's probably what what our friend Malcolm will tell us, but basically we are now probably, I mean, you know, we're, we're very close to running spirit and things like that. Malcolm will give us a full breakdown, but uh, yeah. So, you know, lowland distilleries, um, you know, this is a triple distilled 
always has been. So triple distilled lowland uh, with worm tub condensers. And all of this kit has been pretty much put into the distillery. Um, you and I were there when the stills went in in March. Um, fabulous to see this distillery coming back to life and to have Malcolm on board, who's just can't wait to get going, is yeah. fabulous. So I'm really right. looking forward to hearing the latest Malcolm. Here he goes. Hi there, guys. How are you doing? Yes. 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 Malcolm, thank you for joining us. Now, time to find out how things are going. Malcolm, how's it all going? I was obviously there for the stills going in, which was highly exciting. Yes. Um, obviously, a lot of other stuff has now been put into the distillery. Yeah, Gordon, but uh, I have to say, we have had some delays. Uh, as you well know, some of this kind of happens sometimes with these projects. Uh, some supply chain issues, things like that, that have kind of held us up slightly. But yeah. We're now in a position where I think we're fairly confident on, on dates of, of starting and stuff like that. So so since we last spoke, uh, one of the biggest things to be done has been the washbacks. So they're now fully installed and a lot of the pipe work and various ongoing uh, equipment installations going on apace. Uh, we've fairly well on with that. And that's all leading us to hopefully commissioning possibly, well not possibly, hopefully uh, November, December this year. Uh -huh. We're looking at live runs, commissioning first two weeks in January, and uh -huh. hopefully complete handover by the third week in January. So that, that's our timeline at the moment. So just to rewind back there, uh, Malcolm, what you said, how many washbacks are in there and how did you get them in? What, what, take us through that's, that process. So there's eight, there's eight Douglas fir washbacks, and they were built on site by JB Vats. So all, all the staves were individually brought in and, and put together, just like big barrels, basically. Sure. And I, 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 I played the small part in that by driving some of the hoops. So oh, I think that's some film for posterity. So uh -huh. That's some job, Gordon, isn't it? I mean, oh, it's, them all a, it is. it's a hard job, yeah. Yep. So we've got, we'll get three stills and we've got eight washbacks. Anything else? It, what, is, how's the Basically, most of the equipment, so the, the only big items that are left to bring in, Gordon, are the worm tubs. The one top condenser, so they're due to be delivered on July the 12th and installed then. Excellent. So that'll be the next land, landmark kind of thing, because they're fairly big pieces of equipment to be Yes, yeah, if I'm not right in saying, uh, the crane that brought in the stills was a biggie, yep. a big crane. Uh -huh. I believe you've got to get this a one, bigger crane to get the condenser. This one's, this one's huge, yeah, because, because of the reach it needs and, and the weight of the third, the, the one tubs themselves, yeah, because you can imagine the weight of that big copper coil inside it as well, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, big, big, big industrial cream for that one. And, and just so let's just, so going through the process, obviously, you, we've got the, the mash tun. What's the capacity of that? The mash tun is three tonne. Three tonnes. Three tonnes, yeah. And then each of the, and then each of the washbacks, how many, what sort of Each of the washbacks will hold 15,000 litres of wash, or wash. Okay. Yep. And then through to the still, so the wash still is 15,000 litres. Mm-hmm. So the washer will basically take one wash back, one mash. Right. Uh, and then that'll transfer to the intermediate still, which is 10,000 litres. Mm -hmm. And the spirit still is 8,000 litres. Wow, fabulous. So when you're, when you're putting these things together, because most people will maybe build a garden hut, uh, even that's beyond, beyond me. But when you're building a distillery, I mean, the phone book, there can't be that many people that can do these jobs. Is it easy to source uh, companies and how do you physically, you know, start school well, about there's, it? There's, there's specialised uh, distillery equipment installers like LHS are playing a big part in at um, 
Rosebank, along with Forsyth, very well-known name as well. Mm-hmm. So these are the type of companies that you go to to install all your distillery plant for you. Yeah. It's not their first rodeo. It's no. not, no, no, certainly not. <laughs> yeah. These are specialists yeah. in their equipment and they know exactly yes. what, they, what yes, to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, they, and they'll have contacts in the wider fields. Yes. Are, okay. This, that is some job trying to, and the building itself, roof on, offices, or what, how, how is the actual physical Rosebank looking? The production area is more or less kind of complete, yes, but they're doing a lot of work in the, the so we're re, reusing some of the old original buildings, so the malt buildings, kind of offices and VIP rooms and things like that, mm-hmm. and the, the old warehouse is now being turned into the, that's the visitor side of it, so visitor centre and offices and brand, brand offices, that kind of thing, it's all, it's all ongoing at the minute, they've run into a couple of problems with some of the building not being as stable as they originally thought, so there's some more underpinning to be done and stuff like that. Uh, to make you know slappings through for for windows and doors and stuff like that, so that's kind of held up slightly at the moment. But I'm I'm assured that things are still on track for for them to be finished all the buildings in December. Yeah. And just to say from a public perspective, I think you'll be we'll be looking at somewhere around about Easter time. But um, that's sort of yes, from the visitor centre opening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, from uh-huh. a visitor yeah. centre. So uh-huh. that's very exciting, and uh, it's it's all great. So if you're not a member of the Rosebank club best to go on and join and, and facebook pages and all that type of thing and also i think the three of us are going to be at the Falkirk whiskey festival yes i understand um, so yeah yeah on saturday the 13th of august i believe uh yeah. in uh Falkirk. <laughs> i can't remember what it is exactly <laughs> it's actually in larbert i think it's in which is right next door but if you're yes. uh if you're um wanting to sort of come and meet malcolm find out what's going on and uh Please do um, come and see us there. Yes, we yeah, are. Thank Thank you very much, Malcolm, for the update. No problem. Nice to see you guys, and I'll see you at the Falkirk Whiskey Social. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. If not before. If Lovely not before, to see you. Yeah. Take care, fella. Okay. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks very Bye. much. Bye. Oh, I'm very excited about that, Gordon. That's I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. Next year is going to be very exciting for us here at Ian McLeod and Rosebank. And, and as we mentioned, as we mentioned there, um, if anyone's in the Falkirk area, August 13th, that's the Whiskey Show. Absolutely. Come and join. Come and join us. Yes, we're going to be at the Whiskey Show on August the 13th. Uh, Malcolm will be there. Are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. I think I'm probably even going to be there too. So um, that's good. And, um, and come Gordon, and, Gordon yeah. that's the middle of summer. And that begs one of the great debates of this episode. Ah. Um, and it has been controversial um, because... A lot of people do their whiskey festivals in autumn or early in the year, mm-hmm. and a lot of the gin festivals are in summer, which prompted the, the, the great debate on whiskey unscripted. Is whiskey a summer drink? Uh, yep. Yeah, okay. Done. Good. That's it. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, look, I think... disagree with you, Gordon. A lot of people would. No, of course they would. But that's down to a lot of different reasons. And I think, you know, if you if you mix whiskey, you can drink it any time of the day. You can drink, you, you know, it's if, if you drink whiskey out of a, you know, a Glencairn glass and you, you, want to enjoy it you can enjoy it anytime i mean i lived in i lived in taiwan for a year and um now that's a hot climate yeah. and even in winter time and you just drink whiskey slightly differently you drink it with ice you drink it with soda in a highball 
Um, <laughs> and you when you want another yeah, highball. Um, or you know, just drink it with drink it in different ways. It, it, the the adaptability of whiskey allows it to be drunk anytime. Now there are certain whiskies, in my view, that lend themselves a little bit more to summertime. Right, I would, I would, I would. Now I'm drinking a cigar malt to to sort of make a point that although it's summer, although we've not had much of a summer in Scotland so far, this is probably a richer, more considered winter type whiskey, but. I could drink this anytime personally, and it's a personal thing. So, but then probably if you're speaking more generically, bourbon casks and that lighter vanilla, more fruity, summery, sort of citrusy style, like Glengoyne 12 or Glen Grant, which we had last week, or a Glen Morangy, or a, you know, or even a, an Isla with that type of maturation is much more of that sort of slightly lighter flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can lend itself more to being more summary it just seems because certainly when you speak to some of our sales people they're saying that a lot of the whiskey tastings are getting put back till autumn mm. and the the gin they want the gin tastings so there's still yeah. a little bit of perception out there gordon that, that you know let's push whiskey to autumn and not do it in july august that said there's some great festivals whiskey fringe oh. in edinburgh and also the one in falkirk that i'll be attending as well so but the, the, the issues there that I think there's still a perception. Absolutely, there is. And look, I think if you look at gin and pims and all these types of drinks that you drink, in this, they are beautifully summery. And uh, there's a reason why Wimbledon has an official gin sponsor, but probably not an official whiskey sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I think I think there is a there is a space for whiskey in the summer, and you just need to think about how you want to drink it. And yeah. You know, well, can I just interrupt you, Gordon, because I decided to take my trusty recorder up to uh, Glengoyne and I did dig it. I, I got someone to come on. No, I got someone to say whiskey was not a summer drink, but they were, didn't like to speak on, <laughs> on the recorder. So then I thought I'll go and grab some other people. And this is what they said. Um, and what you do is um, basically you make uh, talk a lot of nonsense right. about whiskey. It's only audio, so don't worry. It's not. There's no video, <laughs> although you all look beautiful. Uh, um, but, Vivian, but there's no script. The big debate for this episode, for episode okay. fifty, is can whiskey is whiskey a summer drink? Do you associate whiskey with summer? Yes, you can. You can drink whiskey at any time of the year. Okay, that's not what I got up the yard there. Okay. Can I ask you whiskey in summer? How does it go with you guys? 365. Oh, I like this. It's a very good tour. You've got, so you think whiskey can be a summer drink? All year round. Right, okay. Can you drink whiskey on the beach? Would you be sunning yourself uh, and drinking a whiskey? Yes, with a lot of ice. Okay. Yeah, definitely, yeah, yes, yeah. Would you make it long? What does that mean? Just soda or oh. ginger ale? Apples. Oh, uh, we thin it, cut it with something. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, probably. Okay, you yeah. Listen, just because you're in the middle of Glengoyne, you can be controversial. <laughs> is it a summer drink, whiskey? Do you believe whiskey is for the summer? Absolutely. This is wonderful. This is, <laughs> this is bucking the trend. Are you the same, or do you believe? Yeah, I think so. You think you're okay? I'd probably put it with ginger beer. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it ginger. And our friends here, uh, is whiskey a summer drink? I've never really think, thought about it, but uh, why not? Why not? I would uh, really try it, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, well, Vivian, I thought, you know, most people would have said it's not hmm. a summer drink. 
Well, maybe because it's such a warm, sunny day here, we're all in summer mood. <laughs> oh, they're very happy mood here. What a great joy for people. By the way, it has been chucking it down today. I know, I know, exactly. But you know, most people think gin and the rums are all the summer drinks and mm. whiskey's the one for the winter. And the same with the whiskey festivals. Yeah. A lot of them are in the winter. But uh, we have proven it wrong today. Absolutely. Vivian, carry on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gordon. Cheers, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you go, Gordon, 100%, totally unanimous. Whiskey is a summer drink, but they were people at a distillery. In <laughs> so the summer. <laughs> yeah, they're maybe not the, maybe, you've got to remember, they're not the widest sort of sphere of people. I think if you spoke to people on uh, a, a street in the middle of nowhere, you might get a slightly different response. However... <laughs> I think there's certain whiskey styles that lend themselves to being more of a summer drink. And certainly, um, you know, those sort of lighter style cask maturation types are more of that. Than yes. And just before we leave this debate, and I've not got them yet, mm-hmm. but the highballs you were drinking in Taiwan, mm-hmm. were those the big golf ball ice yes. cubes? Because I think that, that's, and I've not got, I don't know how you, I must buy those big chunky bits of ice as opposed to the wee small cubes. But, oh no, it, if you want to use great ice for whiskey, get the biggest ice create, you know, in an ideal world circular because it, it mm-hmm. melts slower, but even big squares melt a lot slower than much smaller ones, which means your whiskey doesn't change as much. But cooling a whiskey down makes it a really interesting drink in the summer. And, uh, you know, as I said, drink whiskey the way you want to. So you could even, you can drink a highball, a highball, technically a highball obviously has, you can add soda into it as well. Um, and so to have a, even in a highball glass, I mean, in, in, in Japan, for example, you go to you know, like, like sort of, you know, very sort of basic restaurants and you get a pint of whiskey highball, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a sort of, um, Cacubin highball, which is blended, basically very relatively low-priced whiskey, in a pint glass with ice and soda. Fabulous drink. And very summery. And just a really nice drink to have. So, look, we we can... Well, we can learn a lot from how the people who live regularly in hot climates drink whiskey. That's a a good topic for another time. But hang on, you just mentioned tall glass whiskey with some mixers. To me, that's a very simple cocktail, which to me decides uh, now is the time to play Hey Barman, Whose Booze Is It Enemy? with the wonderful Mikey Sam. Hey Mikey Sim, is he there? I am here, Goddy. How is it going? Mikey, I know you've got uh, other jobs like looking after Smokehead, is that right? Uh, try my best to. I mean, spreading the gospel, I think, is um, the best way to describe it. Okay. Um, we've just missed a debate. We've just missed a debate about whiskies. Uh, in your opinion, is it a summer drink? Uh, I think it's an all-year drink. I think there's times and different ways to for it to be drank all year round. I mean, I'm I'm not going to drink it the same way in the summer as I will in the winter time but again you know i'm i'm one of these modern guys who likes to mix my mix my whiskies too so and mikey that's exactly why you've got you on you've been on the podcast before mikey sim uh, in the virtual bar but now we are going to take you uh, i don't know if you know the name of the game it's called hey barman whose booze is it anyway with mikey sim so mikey oh. the rules of the game are simple you just need to try and pair a whiskey cocktail 
because it is summer, uh, with a celebrity, which Gordon has to guess. It's as simple as that. You can both I mean, that sounds pretty easy. If you want. Okay, so <laughs> what whiskey? Gordon, are you ready? Here we go. Game show. Born on the 2nd of May, 1975 in Lay, Stone, London, to parents Ted and Sandra. I would like a stylish whiskey cocktail, and I don't mind if you use grain whiskey, even a spicy one, preferably red in colour. Mikey, what cocktail would you make for that? Gordon, have a few seconds to think. The clues in the question. I mean, if we're using, I don't know, it's difficult for using grain or something kind of spicy. I mean, you can't much go wrong with a, almost that kind of style-led old-fashioned. Um, you're also going to have a garnish with a cheeky wee red maraschino cherry. Old-fashioned. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I love a maraschino cherry. Yeah, and I, th- I, think, I think that's the thing is that it'll work with grain, I mean, because you're dialing up the sweetness, but also a kind of big, spicy um, space side would work works incredibly well on the old-fashioned front. I mean, as well as the, old, uh, the whiskey from across the shore. Oh, yes. Um, just explain an old-fashioned, Mikey, what, what you put into that glass. So if we're basing it, for example, if, if Gordon had a bottle of uh, Tamdu there, we're, we're, we're stirring down Tamdu, again, 100% um, sherry-matured, big spice. Stir that down with, with uh, bitters. So, again, this is where you can kind of take a different approach on what bitters you'd like to use. If you want to go classic still, you can use Agostura. If you want to kind of dial up the orange or the spicy notes, you can use a kind of spicier bitter um, and sugar. Now, you're stir- stirring that down until the, the sugar is dissolved into the, whis- in, into the whiskey. Um, and then you're diluting that to the kind of perfect taste for you. And then you're pouring that over a large block of ice. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly adult drink. Um, but I mean, one of those ones to be sipped and savoured, garnished with your little cheeky red maraschino. Gordon Dundas, Mm -hmm. whose booze is Mikey Sim handing over? Well, it's interesting, uh, because he's not suggesting you would use Hague Club for this, uh, but I'm guessing (laughs) it is David Beckham. Mikey, is that who you're handing over to, do you think? I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're going grain lead, I think so. The ambassador for, um, I mean, a little bit more famous than, than any of us. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Red, spice and green whiskey. Well done, Gordon Dundas, Mikey Sim. Okay, we've got two more to go. Uh, whose booze is it anyway? I live in Palm Beach Gardens in Florida. I'm a professional sportswoman. I'd usually have a single, maybe a double. But today, my cocktail should be a great pick-me-up as I'm feeling a bit down. It's got to be bold, refreshing and full on like me with maybe a second straw for my sister. Have a thought there. Mikey Sim, what are you going to make for this lovely lady? Now, you both know the famous cocktail of Tom Collins, correct? Yes. Now, if we're thinking whiskey, we're going to go the John Collins. Oh, yes. (laughs) So you have the perfect balance, sugar, lemon, Whiskey, topped up with soda. Quite happily stick a little, uh, what the the cocktail umbrellas on top of there. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, yes, and two yes. and two and two straws. So, yeah, similar and very in, in all the ways in its makeup to the to the Tom Collins, except for breweries of the old uh, the old amber nectar, um, and lengthen that tall, refreshing, two straws and a cocktail umbrella. 
Gordon Dundas, who is needing refreshed? That sounds quite a serene drink. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm guessing, uh, uh, and, and also her sister's possibly a planet. Um, Serena and Venus? Yes, you are correct. Thought they might need a little cheering up after going out in the first round of Wimbledon. And finally, on whose booze is it anyway? Mikey Sim, can you make a, a cocktail for this professional sports star? I was born 1972. I don't like too many ingredients fighting and wrestling for dominance in the glass. Nothing too fast, nothing too furious, something smooth, something chilled. I like a classic. A classic as dependable and as solid as a something dependable. It's going to be a Manhattan. Okay. It's got to be a Manhattan. Three ingredients. Traditionally bourbon. Yeah. Sweet vermouth and bitters. Stirred over ice and into a really super cold Nicanora glass or coupette. I mean, you don't really get any more classic than a than a Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, you can drink back. it anywhere in the world. It'll taste identical, if not similar, all over the world. I'm not thinking that's one of the earliest cocktails from, you know, the middle of the 19th century on Manhattan's. It is. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it is one of the most the most classics of all time. Um, if you speak to any any bartender around the world, they're going to know or should know how to make you a Manhattan. Okay. Uh, do you know who you're... Gordon, do you know who's uh, Mikey's serving? Are you struggling? I am a little bit. Mikey, the only know? person I can think it could be is Jason Statham. Ooh, oh, he's hit the bar. Um, it's wrestling. Uh, See, I'm thinking the old, uh, the old people's elbow. The Rock. Yes, Dwayne Gordon, the I said it's classic as, and dependable and as solid as a solid as a rock. You should know that move in uh, music. Um, so, solid as a rock by um, Womack and Womack. Solid as a rock, uh, the Rock, and that is ah. uh, yes, the well rock. done. Yeah, well done. Fabulous, fabulous. I mean, that fabulous was pretty good, team, pretty good teamwork, though. Yeah, good, very good, good, very good. Well done, so, Mikey. The whole point of this was. Whiskey's summer drink, do it long, make some of those wonderful cocktails. You can rewind us back and hear Mikey uh, put them together. And aside yeah, from all of that, I know Mikey loves a highball too. Yeah, I mean, I love a highball and I think there's certainly there's certainly some summer drams that should be drunk neat as well. I mean, this is yeah, the greatest yeah. thing about whiskey, isn't it? I mean, this, I'm, I'm, I'm partial to putting a bottle of whiskey in the fridge. I'm not going to lie. It oh. might divide opinion, but... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not? Drink it how you like it. Fantastic. My final question is: wisdom from the Simster. Is there (laughs) is there mileage in Hey Barman? Whose booze is it anyway? Is there mileage here? Uh, You you use use and abuse me anything you want. Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mikey. Play that at home, folks. Um, Gordon. You met up with one of our uh, great ambassador friends. I did, uh, and it's a it's a it's a brand, and it's a he, well, he's a fantastic guy. But it's a brand which is, um, I think, uh, you know, certainly garnered a little bit of interest over the last couple of years um, since it took over its new ownership, and they've repackaged it, and I think they're producing some lovely whiskies. So I I caught up with Jamie Morrison of Glen Turret now. Glen Turret, for those who may not know, is the oldest licensed distillery. 
yes, in Scotland. You're, you're going to get to that. We are going to get to that. I thought I knew the date, but he enlightened <laughs> me on that, which I was like, all right, okay. Um, and uh, it's now owned by Lalique, and it also has, well, he's got a lot to talk to, talk to us about, not just about the whiskey, but uh, Jamie's a fabulous uh, yeah, really fabulous ambassador really for this industry and not just for his own brands and um, we've been wanting to get him on for a while so let's hear from Mr Morrison return of the Mac not that Mr Morrison <laughs> so we're joined by Jamie Morrison um, of uh, Glen Turret now Glen Turret Distillery uh, in Perthshire um, is famous obviously because it is Scotland's technically Scotland's oldest is that not right Jamie Absolutely, Gordon. Um, it's since 1763. We're very proud of that. Um, I thought it was 1776. Well, 1775 um, oh. adorned our bottles for quite a few years, to be fair. Oh. And uh, from what we understand, that, that came from Alfred Bernard's book from in 1887. Um, so when uh, Mr. Fairley started up the distillery again after its sort of lull due to prohibition in the late 50s, um, effectively, if you were looking for a brand plan, um, and you found a primary source from 1887 saying that arguably Scotland's oldest working distillery, you would take the brand plan and you would run. Um, so that's effectively what happened. Um, it was kept to 1775. Nobody really did a huge amount of research into it at that stage. Um, and we knew there was always more history to uncover. But, um, you know, you have to think about where we were as a business before, um, as part of the, the previous company. Um, and 1775 worked. But when the new owners took, took hold of the distillery in the, the sort of late 2018, early 2019, we embarked on a huge research project. So um they brought over a, a swiss historian um and his team and they well first of all they had to learn how to understand scottish history which as you know is not always <laughs> easy around about that time anything pre-1823 is like putting a jigsaw together in the dark um but we we eventually started tracing contract of sale to contract of sale and and, and back to signature and they uncovered something that's fundamental now to us and that was a, a rental document from 1763 so it pertained to the then known Thurit distillery, um, so it was sitting uh, on the site where we are, and the lands at that stage were owned by the barony of Ochtertyre, um, uh, principally it was a Sir William Murray of Ochtertyre at that stage, and the rental document says we didn't pay rent in 1763 uh, because we'd been laying waste for several years prior. So not only does it give us concrete evidence that we were in existence in 1763, it kind of alludes to the fact that if you'd lain waste for several years prior, you had to be there in the first place. So that's still mm. part of our history that we're, we're working quite hard on to try and figure out if whether we can go back any further. But we felt confident enough mm. with that, that document that we could say Scotland's oldest working distillery, 1763. So, okay. yes, they've not just found an extra 12 years. <laughs> you have? Well, there you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Because I always thought I used to rep work for Bamore, and I was always like 1775, Bamore, second oldest, 1779. But actually, as you say, you found another 12 years through legitimate reasons, which is great. Absolutely. So, so you mentioned the new owners, obviously. For those who maybe don't know, Glen Turret was um was was part of edrington um and um some may know 10 odd plus years ago it was known as the famous grace experience would that be fair and then obviously probably less so as glen turret at that point but since you guys have taken over there's been a complete transformation of the brand um and it really has become uh something i mean completely different to what it was 
we if you look at it historically it's went through various changes of ownership in its, its sort of entire history but the famous cruise experience i mean they it came in in 2002 um and until the late stage of 2018 so 16 years um mm. we were known as the spiritual home of, of famous grouse and i think what you say is is right it's, it's fair to say that that glen turret as a single mall perhaps wasn't always the focus um for the famous grouse experience i mean for those who have worked there um through that entire time and and prior um glen turret was always the thing that we were most proud of but mm. um it's you know, commercially, it made sense um, to have the famous Grouse experience at Glen Turret. It was one of the constituent malts, etc. And mm. we can't, we, you can't lose sight of the history that put you where you are now. You know, mm. um, so when it came up for sale, um, it, it, it was seen as as a really important distillery uh, for somebody to take forward, and, and then some with some ambition and some vision, and hopefully uh, some some investment, which we've we've seen a great deal of recently, and and. Mm. It's it's just a really exciting chapter, actually. I would probably say it's, in my opinion, one of the most exciting chapters the distillery's ever been through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and now you see Glen Turret, um, you know, it's got some really dynamic, different packaging. It's, well, I mean, we'll come on to the distillery itself shortly, but it's got much more of a range than it's ever had before. And and for those who maybe don't know, if I was to ask you, what what is the sort of house style? What is the style that runs through all that range? And, and what is so, the range? Um, in terms of a, a sort of house character style, when when we talk about the, the the character of our new make, we're looking at a citrus note in there, so orange, lemon, to a lesser extent apple sometimes, but um, that's by the by, and we look for a bit of sweetness, uh, kind of toffee caramel, a little bit of oiliness, not too heavy, um, it's a very mm-hmm. delicate floral spirit, uh, very gentle, so we try and accentuate um, the characters of that spirit throughout the range um, by bringing different series of casks together, looking at different ages, different influences. Mm-hmm. Um, we now also, um, since 2009, uh, largely we, we produce peated spirit as well. Mm. So we've got almost two branches of Glen Turret running concurrently. Um, and this is the first time in 2020, uh, it was the first time we'd really made a point um, of saying, look, this is, this is what we do. Um, the range... We we embarked on some would say probably a bit of a challenge, but um, a, a fun challenge nonetheless. That every year um, our whisky will change, so the the range of bottles are a, a triple wood, a ten years old, a twelve years old, a fifteen, a twenty five, and a thirty. Um, so the the namesakes will remain the same, but every year the the liquid inside the bottle changes, and a lot of that is is to do with stock. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't have a massive amount of stock available to us and to, to to allow you to understand i mean when you are being um sort of a, a blending distillery if you like mm. which is to be honest which is what we were um mm-hmm. you were filling for a blend um not looking mm. at it through a, a vision of single malt production mm. so therefore we have to look at what do we have available to us what is it we want to do with that um and how do we create the the, the sort of the best of our endeavors over a year if you like which is really important because mm. if we use we don't have a massive amount of of casks available to us in the first place so we have to make sure whatever we do with them is the best that mm. we possibly can um yeah. yeah and i think i mean 
I don't want to uh, sort of uh, blow his trumpet too much, mm-hmm. but our, our, our whiskey maker that some of you may or may not have heard of before, um, Mr. Bob Delgarno, he's not a recipe whiskey maker. He goes in and really tries to understand what's going on with caskets. I try and keep up with him and it's incredibly mm. difficult um, to try and get into his <laughs> mind and see what he's thinking because yeah. he can look at something and just know that that's going to work well with that and uh, the skill set and experience that we have yeah. um, in a whiskey maker and, and the, the wider team um, is, is, uh, is an amazing. Yeah. So it's, a, it's interesting that we're able to adapt um, and be quite nimble with the distillery. I mean, being a small production in the region of, sort of 200,000 litres at the moment, um, we are able to trial different barley varieties. We can play around with different casks. We can try a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And as mm-hmm. an independent distillery, you have the freedom to do that. Yeah. Um, so it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And you said 200,000 litres at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I wondered if you'd pick that up. So 200,000 litres. We do have ambition to raise that number to about 500,000 litres. Okay. Um, and I would I would caveat that by saying that it, one thing that we will never, ever allow to happen is for quantity to overtake quality because mm-hmm. it, it just defeats the purpose of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, we are looking to increase the production. Um, in fact, we're going through part of the, the, the sort of step change to that at the moment um, in terms of uh, some 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 investment in the production. So we're, we're, we're looking at moving some things around and adding some things in, which will allow us to increase the production slightly. Um, mm. But the thing is, for us, it's all manual and it always will be. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that we're incredibly proud of. Um, if you, we like to think of it as, as a very traditional sort of uh, small batch production. And that's a, a real strong point for us. Uh, something that we're very proud of. We want to keep going into the future. So, yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. And, and, and of course, as a, as a visitor attraction now, I mean, I know there's been, uh, I've had some friends from Glengoyne have been there for a meeting and they've, they've been around and gone, wow, this place has changed so much. And, and obviously now the other thing, the other, there's another aspect, is you are one of those rare things, you have a Michelin star. Um, can you just sort of tell us a little bit about how that came about in terms of how do you decide to open a restaurant that's going to, and then get a Michelin star? I mean, you know, we don't even have a coffee shop at Glengoyne, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think when the new owners took, took, took sort of control of the distillery, it was always in the vision plan to open a, a gastronomic experience restaurant. And for us, we were we were all keen to see see how that trend sort of came to life. Um, mm-hmm. Our owners have previous experience and, and lots of it in, in, in purchasing sort of heritage property mm-hmm. um, and turning that into something really quite spectacular. Um, I mean, one of our owners, uh, Mr. Silvio Dens, he uh, oh, he bought Chateau Le Ferry Perigee Vineyard um, a few years ago, and he's turned that into uh, a wonderful experience. And uh, Villa René Lalique, of course, um, mm-hmm. which was his original house, was turned into a, a boutique hotel. Um, and I believe um, they've got at least two Michelin star um, there. So it was always in the vision plan. It was a case of, in many ways, 
taking what was often seen as the forgotten distillery. I mean, it's it's the oldest distillery, but you you never really heard anything about it, as we, mm-hmm. we alluded to earlier. But taking it and giving it a, a good polish and allowing that to shine on the stage. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people in the industry and out with thought we were a little bit mad, really. Um, we opened the restaurant and planned to open it in the middle of a world pandemic when lots of things were... <laughs> kind of going uh, pear-shaped for want of a better phrase and I don't mean to take anything away from that I know it's been a really hard time for everybody but we felt that we were ready to open the restaurant um, and we brought in uh, who we felt were the 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 people who were performing at the best of their uh, their field. Um, so our head chef, Mark, uh, Mark Donald, he was at the Balmoral, Balmoral um, for, for a few years prior, headed up there. Um, and previous to that, he's worked in some amazing establishments around the world. Um, yeah. And he brought, he collated his team and brought them to the distillery. And to be honest, Gordon, we're just incredibly humbled that it's been so successful so quickly. I mean, we opened the restaurant and in seven months we were awarded their Michelin star and I mean I you you know yourself you've been to the distillery over the years you've walked up the stairs and you've grabbed some bite to eat now you walk upstairs to the to the restaurant and there really is a wow factor there it's Mm. it's so stunning um I mean everything has been thought of to you know the the colors the the what's on the walls what the you know what the menus look like and we're we're really enjoying the journey um, and it's created, I mean, not only are we the only distillery in the world that has a Michelin star, um, it's created a, a, almost like a, an anticipation to come and see what it's like um, and to enjoy the, the sort of um, fare that we have there. We were very conscious of not creating, allowing the restaurant, actually, let me rephrase that, allowing the restaurant to stand on its own two feet. We didn't want it to be, for example, here's your chicken dish and here's the whiskey that we've paired with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or here's the whiskey sauce for your, your steak. So we wanted to look at the, the provenance of the area and, for example, some of the ingredients we use as, as producing the distillery. So one of my favourite things, um, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say this really, but one of my favourite things um, about the, the restaurant is we make um, malted barley sourdough. Um, and nice. it is, I mean, I'm a big lover of bread. Um, so, yeah, so it's, yeah, I mean, the creativity that comes out of the kitchen, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a wonderful experience. Um, well, we've collated. Sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, utterly fabulous. And uh, you know, look. I mean, I've 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 not eaten in many Michelin starred restaurants, and I've not eaten in that one. But I certainly will try and get up there at some point and try and see uh, try and see the quality. I'm sure it's amazing. And uh, I've not been to the distillery for a long time either. But we'll sort that out. Absolutely. But um, from your perspective, obviously, you've been with the business for how long? Have you now? So I started in uh, March 2015, so what, seven and a bit years now. Crikey. And your your title is? So I'm Global Brand Ambassador right, okay. uh, for the Glenturret brand. Uh, yep. So I began as a, a tour host, tour guide of the distillery. Yep. Loved it. Um, yep. I, I, I still love speaking to people, as you can probably clearly see. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, I I love what I do, um, and yeah. you, you know we've we've bumped into each other in random parts of the world, and you're you're alone traveling, but you're never really alone. You know we have this community yeah. of ambassadors and and people who work in the industry that that really I mean you know yourself included, a lot of us are really good friends now. So yeah, yeah I love what I do. Wouldn't change it for the world. 
No, I have to say, selling whiskey, talking about whiskey, I've done that for a long time. It's a great, um, it's a, it's a great thing to get involved with. It is a community, it is a small industry, really, um, and we all seem to get along pretty much, which is, which is, which is fabulous. And I think the secret of the success, to be honest. Um, and how about? I know you've been away a bit. Have you got any travels lined up? Uh, so I'm probably looking uh, to go over to Germany later on in the year, uh, into whiskey, um, Netherlands perhaps for uh, Den Haag if it happens this year. Um, mm-hmm. Probably Let's hope so. Uh, yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, probably looking to go to Whiskey Fest in New York. And then uh, personally, I'll be going over to India in September. So heading over there for, for three or four weeks. Uh, so quite looking forward to that um but yeah so a little bit of travel well look thanks for joining some whiskey unscripted great to get a sort of update on glen turret and great to see it out there because it's a damn good whiskey and um brilliant to uh brilliant to speak to you my friend yeah no problem gordon anytime hope and, to see you um, soon in the story yeah hopefully all right thanks a lot no worries oh that was fascinating as well i love it for me, I love all the history, and I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll meet up with Jamie somewhere in the UK mm-hmm. or Europe. But Gordon, yeah. that got me, that got me interested about all the dates there when he was chatting about who was the oldest, and he was saying, um, with those researchers from France, they got, I think it was said, the they got Glen Turret down to 1762, mm. and of course, this is a new feature, by the way. I'm, I'm just teeing it up. <clears throat> Uh, of course, I went onto the internet and started doing the research. So this little part is called uh, Dallas's EIR, the Endless Internet Research, because one click suddenly left about an hour and a half worth Did of... you go down a rabbit hole? Yes. Oh, that's a, new, that's a nice name for it. <laughs> down a rabbit hole. With... Anyway, Glenn Turret, yeah, 1762. And then you think, what else is quite old there. You mentioned Bo Moore. That comes in at 1779. That is Most... apparently the second oldest distillery in Scotland. Well, there's the, there's the internet research. Glen Geary is coming in at 1778, just a year before Bo Moore. Although uh... you mentioned 1775, Bo Moore, but according to multiple websites, 1779. So you have the wee look there at Oban, then comes in at the 1790s. Quite a lot come in at seven, got open at 1794. Blair Athol at 1798. Bal Blair, Highland Park, 1790. So you're clicking all those websites, uh-huh. having a wee look there. And then I was thinking about websites and about age of distilleries. And then, of course, a couple of weeks ago, Tor Moore was bought. Ah, oh, that's a bit of news, yeah. Pernod Ricard sold Tor Moore. To Elixir Distilleries, which yeah. is um, the whiskey exchange, which is uh, Sukinda. Sukinda. So, so they bought mm-hmm. And if you don't know Tormor, just while we're on it, famous for its beautiful manicured bushes and topiary. Yes. Uh, as you, and, and I think it's always that. If you drive from the south up to Speyside and you, you drive into Speyside and you drive past Tormor, it's like the opening gates of Speyside. It's like, ah, we've arrived. That's right. It's uh, beautiful. There was a, um, I believe, our Robbie Hughes, who works at uh, as the group distillery manager for Ian McLeod's. Robbie Hughes had a, a job at Tormore. I think he's had a job at about 30 distilleries. Yeah, he has. He has. And of course, the reason I brought Tormore into the conversation was because of Glen Turret. It was potentially one of the oldest 
distilleries in Scotland. Um, Tormor, as a little sidebar fact, is the first distillery built in the 20th century. That was 1958. So there, for the students among you, and this is a date that changed history. 58 years, Gordon, in the 20th century, not one distillery built. And I thought, really? Is that the first one? It would make sense. Really? Yeah, it would make sense because of a prohibition, the amalgamations in the 1920s, World War II, uh, and then the grain rationing, and then slowly but surely, the boom of the 60s was just round the corner. But you thought, really? So I had a look, and, and, and then this is the endless internet research, Gordon, and then I saw something caught my eye. It was a distillery called Loch Side, and it's down from 1957. I thought, what? What's Loch Side? Hadn't heard of it. Did my research. Becky Paskin talked about scotchwhiskey.com that she was part editor of, headed there, and here it is. Lochside Distillery, not built in the 20th century. It was built by none other than Charles Doig in 1899. It was a brewery first, uh, and it closed in 1957, and it was bought by a Joseph Hobbs, who owned Ben Nevis. He spent most of the 1940s working for National Distillers of America, the Scottish arm, Trainer McIntyre. So they had Glenuri and Glenesque, and he bought Lockside uh, in 1957. And it starts coming. Right. And that's why it was on the dates. Where is Lockside? Just sitting above Montrose. And interestingly, this chap, Joseph Hobbs, installed a coffee still. And then four more pot stills were added. And he started trading and uh, selling his whiskey. His son took over and retained ownership until 1973. Then the Spanish distiller Destilias y Kranzas, DYC. Ah, yes, which is now part of Beam Suntory. Ah. They yeah. bought it. They bought ah, it and started using right. it in some of their blends. The coffee still was uh, demolished, but as a landmark, it stood above Montrose and it was a castle, a white tower, built in the style of a German brew house. And as I said, built by none other than the man that built Tamdu and the man that designed the pagoda chimney, Charles Doig. So oh. that took about 90 minutes of my life, Gordon. Going from the chat you had with Jamie from Glen Turret led me via oh. Tormoor to Montrose Lochside to um, where we are today. <laughs> Endless and internet research. Boom. How exciting that is, because it leads us into another little feature that I've I've we, we've we've covered and I know it's hugely popular amongst the we've had a, literally one email about it um, is uh, what's your whiskey destination? Now, yes, the reason, you the have reason arrived. I, the re, you have arrived. The reason I say that is oh. that one of the uh, places that we went to was up in Montrose, which was our Bicky a couple of yes. uh, couple of uh, uh, episodes ago. So, Gordon. Imagine you're in Newcastle upon Tyne. Now, I know you were in Sunderland and Newcastle recently. I was. Okay. okay. Um, and you, you, you've mm -hmm. got your car, you're in your, you're in your captor. Okay, yes. And you're heading south on the A1M from Newcastle. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, going, oh, probably about, um, oh, probably 60, 70, 80 miles on heading down south um, on the A1M. Near Sheffield, you're going to turn off on the M18, and you're then going to take the M1, going all the way south, uh, past Nottingham, keep going south, yeah. um, 
keep going south. You're going to peel off onto the A42. You're now heading southwest. Okay. That goes on to the uh, M42. Uh, you're bypassing around Britain's biggest, second biggest city. Then you're going to join the M5, which is the main motorway southwest. You're heading, continuing to head southwest on the M5. Yes. Um, and you're going to then head west completely on the M50. Oh, you've, I was, that, oh, you've, I, I, I knew where you were going, but you've now, you've now thrown me. Okay, so carry you're on. heading west on the M50. Okay. Uh, you're probably going for about somewhere in the region of 50 odd miles on the M or 40 miles on the M50, which turns into the A40. And you're now uh, going to head on the A40, which then you're going to peel off the A40 onto the A, still heading west, onto the A465. And you're going to head along the 465 for about 25 miles, staying on the A465 pretty much all the way through to your destination at the just before the end of your destination you're going to turn off uh the a465 heading north on the a4059 for two or three miles which means absolutely nothing to people living <laughs> out with the united kingdom it doesn't Correct. mean much to me because i thought when you hit the m5 south of the second city was your clue the second city in the united kingdom is birmingham and birmingham uh, south of that was the Cotswolds, but then you took a left and you went west, and I think you've moved into the the wonderful country that is Wales. And I think you, I've got no idea roughly where I've gone after the A four six five, but I think I have arrived at my whiskey destination is Pendern. Is it? Yes, you're in Wales, the wonderful. And we'd love to, we must get people on from Tindern. That's a great distillery. We must have a, a good chat, I think, at some point. No, here. absolutely. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, Gordon, Gordon, you were at a whiskey destination. We can just squeeze this one in. This was a few weeks ago. Could you set up your meeting with Mr. Schaefer in Nuremberg? Yes, well, I mean, I wanted to interview this gentleman because I've known him for a long time. And he is probably one of the most avid whiskey fans. Set up his whiskey club many, many years ago before there were whiskey clubs anywhere in the world. Um, and um, Bernard is a very influential man in the, the German whiskey industry uh, and also the worldwide whiskey industry. He's a master of the quake um, and uh, just a fabulous, um, fabulous person to, to hear about and listen to him talking about whiskey. He was in our Rosebank video that we did for our 30 year old first release. But the other thing that I was keen to find out about Bernard is he wears this amazing bit of jewelry on his ear. Um, and anybody who knows Bernard might want to know why he wears it and what it means. And so ultimately our world exclusive is we get to the bottom of what what what's Bernard's ear jewellery about. So, no, look, brilliant gentleman. Uh, I was with him in Germany about a month ago. So this is great. So, uh, yeah, fabulous to hear him. So I'm here in Germany at the oldest whiskey club in Germany, the Highland Circle um, in Nuremberg. And I'm here with the inimitable Bernard Schaefer. Bernard, how are you? I'm fine. I had a wonderful tasting of tender whiskies with a chap called um, Gordon Dunders. He did it very well. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, it was a great tasting, great crowd. And we're sitting here just having the, the sort of aftermath and we've had a great evening. Bernard... This is a really special whiskey club, isn't it? If you say so. 
Oh, come on, don't be so modest. It is a special whiskey club. I mean, we founded that back in 1990 when whiskey was not uh, this expensive and was not so popular as it is nowadays. It was just a bunch of 15 people had the same interest. Enthusiasts, yes. We, we, we met on the first Sunday of November in 1990 and we never changed that. So every month on the first Sunday, the Whiskey Club is meeting. Doesn't matter where we are, in which condition we are, or whatever, we're meeting on the first Sunday of the month. And so I know that you, how many members do you have? Well, all together with all the different type of memberships, we are on about 60 nowadays. Okay, and I know also, interestingly, being from Glasgow, you are paired with Glasgow, is that not correct? Well, the city of Nuremberg is twin city of Glasgow since, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, something like that. And also our whiskey club is, has also, due to that twin city ship between the cities, we have twinned with the Orin Moore Whiskey Club in Glasgow as well. Which has a few characters we both know in it. Hey, yes. One or two. Yeah, or two. well, uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. One yeah. or two. And I know also that about a month ago, maybe two months ago, you had the big the, the whiskey fair here in, in yes. Nuremberg, which is a massive occasion, isn't it? Well, the Nuremberg Whiskey Show is relatively new concern. Uh, if, you, if you see Germany as a whole, we have, I think it was the 10th anniversary now. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a quite big show. I mean, we had the, the least figures due to COVID with the, with the well, now after COVID, there were around about, about 10,000 people. And the, the maximum was about 16, 17,000. So it is by far the largest whiskey show in Germany. Fabulous. That, yes. I mean, it's really, really good. And I know it's a, a and the big best one thing, in the, the best, The best thing at the whiskey show is, for those people, the whiskey club likes... The whiskey show starts on Friday evening, but for those people the whiskey club likes, and they are here already, on Thursday evening we have an unofficial opening party at the whiskey club, friends meeting. And on Sunday when the show is over we have an unofficial closing party at the whiskey club. <laughs> for, the, for the hard ones, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't had quite enough whiskey at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fabulous. Now, I also, I know you do a lot of um, travel. I know you're a... I'm, I'm honoured to be a keeper of the quake. I know you're a master of the quake. Oh, that's that correct. correct. Yes, that's correct. And you were saying you've been a master of the quake for how long? Well, I became a master of the quake in 90, uh, 2007. 2007. I so, became a so. keeper in 1996. The good thing was when I was there, the guest of honour was His Royal Highness Prince Charles. Oh, wow. Right. And what surprised me, well, he was very funny and witty. But, but what surprised me most was the security. It was, I could have a Kalashnikov under my kilt. I, was, I wasn't searched. I was 10 meters away of this guy. And even my, my, my skin do. I mean, I don't have a, this nowadays, this new plastic shit for traveling. Yeah. I have a proper knife, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I was really puzzled about that. So now I was, I was very, I was very lucky to have him there when I became a keeper. In 2007, I became a master and yeah. It's nice. And being one of Germany's sort of foremost spirit experts, I know you love whiskey, but I know you love rum and other, other spirits as well. And I know you it, it hasn't for the last two years taken you around the world, but it does generally take you around the world. Bit of judging and things here and there. Yep. What's coming up this year? Well, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm with, a, with a Belgium competition. I'm going to Guadeloupe in uh, six weeks which is famous for rum, yep. rum agricole. The good thing for us, it's technically Europe, so I can pay with the, can pay with the euro. I don't have this customs excise stuff, so it's, it's Europe. And then I'm going to South Africa, 
for a competition there, which is also very nice. It's in the Stellenbosch area. We do all kinds of spirits there. I mean, very funny. They're very big in gin as well. And at this competition in South Africa, which is different to other competitions, those people will bring in the products. They have to give you a sheet with the main botanicals they're putting in, which is unusual. You don't usually don't have that. And the last time I was there, we had a, a, a gin where they, they stated, botanical sauce from elephant dung. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds tasty. Yeah, but it was a proper gin. Sounds tasty. Yeah, Sounds and tasty. I'm going to Scotland in two weeks. And yeah, I'm yeah. hopefully going to Scotland. And, well, I'm going to the Keeper's Banquet in October. That's my plan as well. I might see you there. Might yeah, see that's you there. good occasion. And one final thing. You're, yeah. you're exceptionally recognisable. Um, and um, I'm going to... Well, the belly was expensive. It's no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> had a lot, a lot of investment in it. Yeah. Mine too. I'm talking about a particular piece of jewellery that you wear yeah. on your ear. Your, your Instagram... Uh, sort well, of you can't handle. see that on the podcast, can you? Uh, no, but it's, yeah. uh, people, will, people who will have seen you will know what I'm talking about. Very unique piece of jewellery in your ear. And yeah. um, I know you've worn it for a long time, but I'd just love to know, bit of a bit of a whiskey unscripted exclusive. I know a lot of people in the industry want to know as well. well how did it come about? Okay, you're talking about the silver ear. I'm talking about the silver ear. Silver. Yeah. Some people call me silver ear as well. Yeah. It's kind of nickname. Well, when I was a little boy, at the age of 17, 17 and a half, I had three funny ideas. The first funny idea was, you know, policemen and firemen and everybody, they have these little stripes on their dresses which reflect the light. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be very cool to have a dinner jacket out of this fabric, mm. which was difficult at that time. There was a company called 3M. Mm -hmm. uh, where they make these post-its and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they produce this fabric and they had an office in Nuremberg not anymore so I went to them and said I, I'd like to buy this, this stuff do you have that? yeah in one meter forty so I would like to have a jacket out of that can I buy some? yeah you can buy some it's no problem it's a roll of fifty meters it's seven thousand marks <laughs> I said eh, uh, yeah well um, I need five meters <laughs> no you have to buy the whole thing but anyway, I, I, I talked them into it. So I got five meters of this fabric. I went to a tailor and I said, I'd like to have a dinner, check it out for that. And the guy took the, the fabric in his hand and it's, it's quite uh, stiff. And he said, ah, oh, I think we have to, well, we have to treat it like a tent. So, okay, I had a dinner, check it out for that. This was the, the first idea I had. The second idea was, you know, we're coming to the Sylvia. The second idea was, you know, these sunglasses with mirror, mirror yeah, sunglasses. Very 80s. Yeah, well, well it was 80s. Yeah, yeah. It was in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. I remember and I, chips. And, and I thought what would be... At that time, I worked in a bar. And what I thought would be really a stunner would be have contact lenses out of this material. Oh, nice. I mean, they, you, you saw in, in science fiction films, cat's eyes or whatever. Like but a bit Terminator-ish, maybe, with those. Even more. But, yeah. okay, I talked to people and they told me, ah, well, it's technically possible you need hard contact lenses and the silver you have to it's probably poisonous for your eyes so it's dangerous and the last point was it would be 10,000 marks I'll be talking about the 80 so yeah okay no, no chance and the third thing was as I'm a, a vivid fan of uh, Star Trek as well I thought a silver ear would be nice mm. and at that time I had a, a friend she was apprentice of goldsmithing uh, goldsmith apprentice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she said, yeah, I can do that. So we made a mold of my ear. And then she hammered what you now is silver. If you see inside, which you cannot see on the podcast, it's hammered. Yeah. So she, she really hammered this piece of silver. It's very light. It doesn't weigh anything. 
and it cost me at that time the, the, the silver price was 70 marks and I had to kiss her for that <laughs> so when I'm wearing this ever since and it, it never fitted really properly but and in the beginning I was, I was very shy to wear it I thought people look strange and nowadays when I'm leaving my house without it I have to make like, a little touch if it's, if it's there like yeah, when you have, because I don't feel it yeah. Yeah, like, yes like that so it's now I feel uncomfort- uncomfortable without it and, that, and it, it's, a, it's an advantage and a disadvantage I mean I go to a pub somewhere in Glasgow and they say hey you still owe me three pints <laughs> you bought 95 or something like that because I'm the because people I, remember I'm, well as I'm wearing this thing so long and I've been traveling the world I never saw anybody else with a thing like that I've, so I'm probably the only one so I always have to pay my bill you know <laughs> and there you go an exclusive they, I, I have always wanted to know so I'm sure lots of other that's people a, have that's a true story the other story is that it's a war injury or somebody bite, <laughs> bit my ear off in sexual intercourse it's all lied oh. it's just, it's it's just it's, it was yeah. just a crazy idea and it's great and it is very iconic so thank you Bernard, well, for a wonderful evening thank you I have to thank you I've, we've had a wonderful tour around Nuremberg today I've learned more about Nuremberg in the last sort of five or six hours wonderful host wonderful evening thoroughly enjoyed it pleasure to see you my friend cheers cheers Gordon that was absolutely superb um, interview there really I was not expecting it to take that twist these, no. <laughs> the ear twist was quite absolutely. Uh, <laughs> this is no odd. Listen, we're almost out of time here. When I've had Malcolm on, Mikey on, and Bernard there, but just a couple of things, a couple mm-hmm. of things out of that interview. He mentioned Glasgow's twins with Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we've all, already had the EIR, the Endless Internet Research. I thought, mm-hmm. I thought there was, I thought there was another city. Do you know you can be polygamous with twinning? I thought uh-huh. once you were twinned, that was you, but no, no. Glasgow is twinned with also Turin, Italy, signed in 2003. Nuremberg, Germany, 85. Um, there was Rostov and Don in Russia, currently suspended. Lahore, Rostov, I've been there. Lahore, Pakistan, I've 2006. Dalian in China. Havana in Cuba. Bethlehem yes. in Palestine. And Marseille in France. Glasgow is twinned with these. So... I, Again, I didn't know that. And I just love, uh, Gordon, that's maybe throwing you in the spot before we go. He did say that jewellery idea was just a, a funny idea he had when he was younger. Mm, um, absolutely. You must have had a couple of those, Gordon. Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, yeah I'll, I'll go first. My funny idea, um, I just thought if I could look as close to Don Johnson in the 1980s as possible, uh, life would be so much richer for uh, the socialising that I would conduct in nightclubs. How, so, did yes. that, how did that go for you? Not well. No. Not well. No, moustache, hair to the shoulders, jackets, uh, pastel coloured, up to the elbows. And I remember going through as a student, in my first week as a student, being laughed at at a key card machine with students were standing behind me. And I was dressed like Don Johnson. I thought, maybe time to change. Did these you have a crocodile under your arm? <laughs> so these are the funny <laughs> ideas, Gordon. I don't know if you've had any funny ideas as a young um, man. You put me on the spot. Yes, of course, I had many funny ideas, <laughs> but uh, not many I could share on this platform. <laughs> no, I didn't um, think of it. But well, uh, no, look, great to, great to have done episode seven. Um, episode, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh yeah. Only, only about a month or so because you've got holidays. I'm off to Australia with work, so we can't really do one in the next. But we'll come back with um, 
Oh, will it be a yes. new season? Or a new season. Eight? I think we just maybe start new season. Why not? Yeah, season season six it will be. So oh, that's, that's going to be in August. Um, but we hope you've enjoyed this season, and uh, we will see you in August. Yes, great, Gordon. Let's lace the glass. Have a happy summer. Whiskey is a summer drink. We've established that, and have yeah. a great time down under. And folks, we'll see you in August. We'll do such a lot of recordings as well, and we'll keep it all out. August. Absolutely, and catch up with all the other 57, 58 episodes, fifty-three, sorry, episodes we've had. Yes. Thanks to Malcolm, Mikey, and to um, Bernard and. Jenny. <laughs> well done. Too much. Cheers, Gordon. Bye. <laughs>